Hello and welcome to Design Education Talks podcast by the New Art School. Our guest today is Carl Swan. Welcome, Carl. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you here today. Tell us about you and your work. Well, I've been uh, a graphic or typographic designer for 50 years. I started out at art school when I was 16 years old, and uh, that was quite a new experience, coming from a, an all-boys grammar school, with uh, then getting into an art school in the 1950s in England with all those beautiful, big-bosomed girls, you know. It was quite a shock and nice shock, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, I discovered that um, typography was a comparatively untouched field. Uh, certainly, in term in, in the nineteen fifties, it was you know nobody had heard of a typographic designer. In fact, nobody had really heard of designers. Um, but in my art school, we just got a, a new teacher of typography who was straight out of industry. Uh, Leicester, my hometown, wasn't, uh, fortunately for me, quite a good centre for printing. And the design uh, standard was quite high. Who and was your teacher? Who was my teacher was straight out of um, the printing section and was really a very interesting guy and knew, really knew his stuff. He was a lovely man. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. So what was the art school you studied in? Sorry, what? What was the art school you studied in? In Leicester College of Art. Leicester College of Art, yeah. Which was lucky because it was quite a good one. It, uh, I think in the 1950s, you know, there was a, there was maybe a lot of art schools were not that great, uh, certainly outside of London. Um, but Leicester had, along with Birmingham, London and Manchester, Leicester had postgraduate courses. It was recognized as a postgraduate center. So that was pretty pretty advanced for the time. I was just lucky to be in the right place. So what happened What happened during your studies? Well, I was uh, trained as a typographic designer, and I was... It, I was an unusual art student because I was then placed into the School of Printing. Mm. And I was the only student that Tom Wesley had. I mean, the only full-time art student that Tom had. And so I had a one-to-one -one relationship with the tutor, which was, of course, terrific. And I learned so much from that guy who had uh, such a lot to offer. And he was a lovely man to be with as well. So the last three years of my art school time, which was five years in total, I spent really under the wing of Tom Wesley and came out as actually quite a competent typographer, uh, particularly as I'd been trained in the printing school. And in those days, of course, that was just a letterpress. Um, just about everything was produced letterpress in those days. Uh, offset lithography was beginning to take over as the big business end. But for most designers, uh, one was specifying typographic layouts for the printer. And it was 
quite a, uh, a discipline to, to know uh, how to set type. And I actually got a prize, would you believe, uh, for monotype keyboard work. I learned to touch type when I was about 19 or 20, and uh, that was that was useful. Um, but the main thing was that I, I did a bit of bookbinding, a bit of letterpress printing, a bit of uh, composition in the composing room. I did a bit of um, uh, machine work, uh, treadle, treading a platen press, you know, um, and also do, knowing how to operate a guillotine and I was a little printer, uh, and I was actually called Tom's Baby by various people. But it was, it was a terrific training. And what happened sort of when you tried, to, when you graduated? So what, what, happened, what happened then? Well, that was a problem, because in those days, all able-bodied 18-year-olds had to uh, go and do their military service. And, mm -hmm. uh, you could defer... Yeah. If you were on a course, and I did that, I would deferred until I was 21 when I finished the program. And, but then I had to go into the Royal Air Force. Uh, but I was lucky again because I got photography. And I'd, I'd, uh, I'd not had a very good photographic training in the art school because it hadn't really started then. But going into the RAF, Uh, they were very organized on training. And it wasn't just a sort of, you know, just try this technique. It, we started with photograms and the, the quality of light and uh, fixing stuff, you know. Um, it was really a good, very basic photographic training, which, of course, became so useful to me in the professional life because I wasn't a good illustrator. Um, but I, I mean, I could draw, but I wasn't a good illustrator. I could draw typefaces. Um, but photography and typography combined was quite a potent communication tool. So photography in the RAF was a bit of an interruption of a design career, and I would have very much liked if they'd just taken me away for a year rather than two years of my life. But um, it wasn't entirely wasted. It was really good photographic training. Wonderful. And, and after, after that? Well, um, I got a job with a printing firm. Now, um, printing firms these days are quite large if they've got 10 or 12 people. The firm I joined had 750 people. Uh, that's a large printing firm by anybody's standards, and it was large by then. Um, there were only about eight or nine comparatively, uh, comparative size printing firms in, in the UK at that time, including places like the, the Manchester Stationery Office. So it was a big firm in Nottingham, and they were just starting a design group under uh, an ex-compositor named Vic Stapleton. And Vic was uh, quite a fierce guy, um, very different to Tom. He was very gentle. Um, 
and uh, you know, rather a sort of refined English gentleman, you know. But uh, Vic was quite forceful. But nonetheless, he was very good. He knew his business, and I learned a hell of a lot. I was only there for a year before I was enticed back to an advertising agency in Leicester where I'd worked in one of the holiday periods. And they wanted a typographer, and I went back to do typography with them. And that um, that was quite interesting because uh, I was taken on board by George Genge, who was the copywriter. And he ran a octavo size magazine, which was uh, about advertising and uh, in the area. And it was called AdLib. And he took a shine to some of my design abilities. And I had a free hand uh, to design the covers and even the magazine itself. It was only a small thing, but it, it was good because he got me some designs which didn't have the commercial pressures of clients wanting this bigger and that bigger. And uh, I enjoyed the time with G-advertising, uh, even though I didn't do that much. I mean, typographers in, G in advertising agencies in those days just fitted the text around whatever illustrations the art directors had conjured up. Mm -hmm. But it was good. It was a good experience. And um, it enabled me to be back in Leicester where Tom wanted me to do some part-time teaching. Uh, and I did, I did a couple of evenings teaching, which got me interested, of course, in the teaching. And he encouraged me to apply for a full-time lectureship at Manchester College of Art, which I applied for and, to my surprise, got so I started there, actually in Manchester, when I was 25. I started at Manchester as a, an assistant lecturer, grade B, which was very poorly paid. Um, and uh, I, was, I was also married, and we just started a family as well, so it was, it was a tough time uh, financially. But it was great to be in education and to be with uh, some pretty experienced people. There was a typographer, Stan Walford, who... Is no longer with us, but Stan was um, head of the graphic design department and a very fine typographer. And he was uh, one of my idols and mentors in that first job, along with uh, a man named Don Warner, who died only a year ago. Um, and uh, Don was a very generous and teach you. He was more experienced than I was. He hadn't, he had done uh, military service, but uh, somehow he seemed to be much more uh, experienced and knowledgeable and introduced me to a lot of uh, philosophical books on design and so on. Um, I really got into the Swiss stuff at that stage. Uh, and Don was really generous in sharing his information with me. So I was lucky again. I'm, I'm, my wife was fond of telling me and everybody that I was born under a lucky star. And uh, I wouldn't argue with that, actually, mm. most of the time. And certainly professionally, I was lucky.
So, cheers. So, what happened um, during sort of what what was what was design education then? Those days, like. Well, it was it was before the um, <clears throat> equivalent of a BA in design. It was just a diploma from the colleges, but it was uh, Manchester was quite a uh, go ahead place, and they they developed a lot of new courses. And they also had a, what I, I was teaching in the typographic workshop, which was home to me. Uh, the letterpress workshop was terrific. Uh, we, I had the great fortune again of, of a technical assistant who managed that workshop, a guy named Tony Bennett, not the singer, uh, but Tony was really first class. He was terrific with the students. And I think we ran a pretty good uh, program up, up in Manchester for just a few years. I'm still in touch, by the way, with some of the, uh, the, the students who wow. obviously went on to do quite successful design careers. Do you remember anything of the curriculum of those days? Sorry? Do you remember anything from the curriculum of those days? Well, I, w I, was, um, I was teaching typography to all the students who came into graphic design. So those who might finish up as illustrators or advertising. In the first year I introduced typography. It was like a diagnostic year. Mm. And then students uh, chose what they would do in terms of whether we're going into advertising or uh, three-dimensional design, whatever, illustration. Um, I ran the typography option, a two-year uh, program up to the DIP-AD, and we had actually a good team of staff uh, and some very bright students. Manchester was attracting good students. Mm. Uh, and... I was doing a, a, a typography introduction program, which was based on Emma Ruder's uh, Swiss stuff in, in Basel. And that's when I got introduced to the working party on typographic teaching. And the WPDD was uh, established by uh, the HMI for Art and Design, a man named David Rutt. Uh, and he put um, Michael Twyman, who was professor of typography at Reading University. Mm -hmm. So we we gathered together actually quite a lot of typographic teachers. And the first conference in 1968 was at the Central School of Arts and Crafts. And that was quite a, a turning point, I think, in the UK in terms of focusing much better teaching in the area of typographic design. And I, I was one of the presenters which uh, to share the stuff I was doing at Manchester. Um, let me tell you, uh, when I finished my presentation of what, what we'd be doing at Manchester with this glorious letterpress workshop, uh, um, I finished my presentation and, and there was a call for questions from the audience. And somewhere in, right in the middle of that, quite big theatre, a voice said, uh, well, it's all very well for you chaps in a nice rich place like Manchester, but what do we do in you know, places where we don't have the glorious equipment you've got? And I was flabbergasted by that uh, because I'd, I'd never expected anything of that kind of nature. And before I could 
think of an answer. Peter Burnhill, who was head of graphic design at uh, Stafford, jumped up and shouted back to this middle of audience person, what are you talking about? What are you afraid of? I can teach typography with a stick in the sand, uh, which was uh, became a very important phrase. Uh, I carried that with me for the rest of my life because I think what it did was to encapsulate that it didn't really matter what technology was going to be. What was important was the principles of typography, you know, the letter spacing, word spacing, line spacing, spacing around the page and so on. And uh, that you can teach without knowing what the technology is. And, of course, from that letterpress workshop, and letterpress operation in industry. We've gone through film setting and uh, offset lithography and uh, strike on typewriter stuff, uh, photo typesetting. And now we've got a computer desktop uh, with software uh, like InDesign, and I've just discovered uh, Affinity. Mm. And I mean, it's magic what we have on the desktop now. And from all of that happened within those 50 years of working, my working life, it changed from that uh, very skillful 500-year-old craft of setting time and printing in quite complicated uh, print shops to now I can just... Uh, Conjure something up on on my computer, yeah. email it to the local office work, and um, go and pick up the print. It's uh, if I don't print it on my own home printer, which is probably not. I don't need. A, I only do the proofing on, on that. I we do, we don't have the equipment that um, the professional places have. But I mean, it, it, it's been a vast change in one lifetime. Yeah from that technology which Gutenberg invented 500 years before, you know, to, to the sort of magic of what we can do on the computer now. It's amazing. So how do you feel that has changed in education as well? Uh, so how do you feel that that has shifted in education? That, yeah, it, it, had, it had its problems. And I, I remember in um, South Australia, uh, when I was teaching typography to first-year students, basically, that um, I had to ban uh, designs on A4 sheets of paper <laughs> because the students just went to the nearest uh, thing they could do on a computer and, and handed in you know, as a sheet of paper. And I deliberately set projects which were making up uh, Chinese books, folding paper and uh, getting them to look at paper and print and what how it felt in their hands to actually be a three-dimensional object to, to handle and read and get information from. Yeah. So you said you wanted to talk about the working party on typographic teaching. Oh, yes. Well, they, uh, it, it really brought together... Um, a lot of the best teachers in the UK, 
Uh, and we had conferences and working parties and stuff, which enabled us to share our expertise and also share it with, with others. And uh, I think it made quite a difference. Michael Twyman was a fantastic man. I mean, he still is. He's still around. Uh, Michael was a professor of typography course at Reading University. It was unique in the UK. I mean, all of us were running graphic design courses in art schools until they went into the polytechnics. But Michael had developed typography within the university context, and they were looking at the theories of communication and how the language was used, the visible language, was used uh, rather like that um, uh, teaching typography with a stick in the sand. Uh, Michael was terrific, and what he was, uh, what, what we all went along with and suggested in the report of the working party was you needed not uh, to rely so much on the art school background where one dealt with just visual shapes. Uh, one had to deal with the communication of information and uh, we also had to bring in the expertise of other people like the computing because uh, that was very important at the time, and how, how computing was affecting the design scene. Marketing people, uh, sales people, uh, the sociology of mass media. Um, it was to give students a very different kind of background to the normal art school training, which had concentrated very much on just visual shapes, uh, artistic shapes for their own sake and uh, with very little application in the real world. So that during the, the, the late 60s and the 70s, it was a very important uh, broadening of the concept of visual communication. So we, we, we were lucky to have that started by David Rutt, the HMI, and guided principally by Michael Twyman, plus... Uh, some terrific work from Ernest Hopp, who uh, was also a middle European designer who come from Britain and was keen to uh, introduce a lot of the continental metric systems and so on. So that it, it was a, a very good place where we could have an exchange of information and, and sharing stuff with conferences. It was staff development of what a significant you, you also said you wanted to talk about writing, typing, design, designing. Peter okay. Green. Um, I, I'd met Ernest and been impressed by him. He wanted to come and see what we were doing at uh, Manchester. And I invited him, got him paid to come and do a project. Uh, and um, that was a very smart move on my part because I, I learned a lot more than students. Uh, what Ernest introduced was the concept of writing and the, the comparison and the difference between writing, typing and printing. And that was fairly simple in those days because that's that's all we had. Yeah. You know, write, write, write some notes or write a letter. 
uh, you could type stuff with a strike on typewriter, um, but then you could do letterpress printing. Uh, and I've used that kind of three sections very much all the way through. Even uh, I've been teaching online for a, a design institute in, in Australia, and I did uh, three units of typography and uh, developed the units and, and taught them. But I was still doing uh, writing, typing, and printing, in a sense, because what I obviously had to change to was uh, writing or texting and uh, printing off the off the computer and then designing on a much broader scale for mass communication. So I, I developed that writing, typing, uh, and designing into a project where I got the students to write a letter to a personal friend about something they felt very uh, emotional or passionate about. And uh, the students were required to write that letter uh, or use it in digital form as a text message. Um, they were then asked to, instead of writing just to their personal friend, where they knew that friend and how to communicate with them, that they would have to write to a newspaper on the same kind of issue same, and try and persuade a more general readership. And the last exercise, they, they didn't know what they were doing until they got to the, each stage. And the last exercise was to design a T-shirt with the same message on. So they had a lot of different forms of expression and technology uh, with the same message. And I had one bright student at, um, at, at, in South Australia, the University of South Australia, uh, Peter Green, and he uh, he wrote a, a lovely letter to a personal friend, and it was about suicide. His friend had had thoughts about suicide, and he wrote a very uh, passionate, moving letter to persuade his friend not to get involved with that. He then wrote uh, a bright letter to the newspapers to try and put uh, a wider emphasis on all of this. And then uh, he was surprised when the last exercise was to make a, a T-shirt out of this. And he was the only student who didn't submit on the last presentation of the T-shirts. And I was surprised because he's, I knew he was a good and able student. And he came to me after and said, I, I, I didn't think you'd take my design, my idea for this. And I said, try me. And he said, well, I, I was thinking about my friend again. And he said, I, I, I had a T-shirt, uh, but it wasn't a message on the front. It was a label on the back inside, which said, think well of yourself when you wear this T-shirt. I thought it was brilliant, and uh, um, Peter went on to do a good career in design, of course, but I, I thought that was fantastic, uh, poetic, virtually, in concept, and uh, 
it kept me going with the with that project because I thought, well, if if, I, if someone can come up with that idea, it's not a bad project. <laughs> Absolutely. You also said something about letter to a friend, email to a, to a newspaper, t-shirt. This is this is the one you talked about uh, right now. Sorry, um, you said you said letter to a friend, email to newspaper, t-shirt. This this is the one you talked about, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. And the distance learning strategies. So, but but between Manchester, what so what happened after Manchester? Ah, uh, well, I I got the job as head of design. Head of graphic design at uh, North Staffs Pollock, which was really only down the road about 50 miles. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a halfway between Manchester and Birmingham. Uh, and it was a new, it had been a small art school that had been merged into two large technical colleges in 1970. That was in the setting up of polytechnics throughout the United Kingdom. And uh, I became head of the graphics at, again, the right time, because uh, from the swinging 60s, in Macmillan's uh, wonderful phrase of the swinging 60s, the rich 60s, uh, we, we went into the 1970s with a reasonable amount of money. So expansion was very much uh, the key to education at that time. And the polytechnics wanted to expand like mad, so... Uh, the graphic design course that I went to only had an intake of 15 students a year. That's, that's about as small as you, you, know, you can get. Yeah. Um, and there was a moratorium on, on the number of students that you could have in art and design. But that did change after a few years. And, and what we developed in conjunction with the, the regional Her Majesty's Inspector, a man named Dick Hiley, was to introduce a multidisciplinary design course. So what happened was we put together the three-dimensional design department, which was largely ceramics, of course, in Stoke-on-Trent, um, and the graphic design, which we'd expanded into uh, illustration, typography, and uh, audiovisual. Uh, we expanded it all into this multidisciplinary design course, and it, uh, in the end, we were taking in 120 students. So there was a, that was quite a significant enlargement of art and design, in, uh, which went on, I think, in, in a lot of places with the polytechnics. There was a lot of expansion time. And I was there for, I mean, I'd moved around quite a lot in the early stages, and uh, in Stoke-on-Trent, I was there for 11 years as head of the School of Design, of Graphic Design. Um, and we, you know, it was also uh, a place where I lived for quite a long time. <clears throat> it was all quite exciting at uh, North South, but it, it, um, I felt I needed something new and a new challenge and when the post of head of design at um, St Martin's School of Art in London came up I applied for that and again surprised myself by getting it and um, <coughs> excuse me uh, that was 
really quite a, a step up from Stoke-on-Trent. No, I mean, nobody wanted to know about Stoke-on-Trent. Oh. Uh, not really, except people, uh, potters did, of course, uh, ceramics people. But uh, Stoke-on-Trent, as a, as a design, as a graphic design centre, was, you know, not on the, not on the map. St. Martin's School of Art in Covent Garden, central London, was a different kettle of fish altogether. Mm. And I found that um, the newspapers and uh, campaign papers were coming to me to comment on whatever was happening. Um, and I was saying the same things that I was saying when I was up in, Man- in, in Stoke-on-Trent. Um, but suddenly it was a London voice and I uh, got some publicity, which... <laughs> It's very London-centric, uh, is, is the UK. But it was interesting, and it was great. I loved to be in uh, Covent Garden. Uh, it was a different world. It was amazing, really. Uh, the sort of things that happened because it was London, and it was on Covent, on a long acre in Covent Garden. And we had this um, on the ground floor, of this old uh, 1920s warehouse building, there was um, a, a nice win- shop window, and we had a technician who used to hang student work up in there. And we, uh, because of a guy named Richard Doust, who was very good on the, and, and a long-time member at, um, at St. Martin's, Richard had introduced computer graphics. And the students were printing stuff out on these long sheets of graph paper. Um, and some guys from Macintosh, Apple Macintosh, walked by, saw this stuff, came in and said, would you like half a dozen Macintoshes to play, you know, give to the students to play with? We'd love to see what they do with it. And, well, you know, would we? Uh, it was... Quite something to be in the middle of London where that kind of thing could happen. Um, it would never happen in Stoke on Trent. Absolutely. So you went to become head of department? And, and then? Well, I was um, head of St. Martin's for a while. And then we had this terrible thing of um, we had to merge courses with the central school. Now, it wasn't terrible, you know, being central school, but trying to totally reorganize the different ethos of teaching approaches in two different schools. I mean, central school had been there for uh, Yonks and so on, uh, St. Martin's for that matter. And we were challenged with... Uh, having to reduce courses in central London. And what they, what the, uh, the London Authority decided to do was to combine courses rather than lose them. So our uh, situation was that we would have to combine the two graphic design courses at Central School and St. Martin's and also combine the two fine art courses. So that way we would reduce two courses in, in London. And this why, were, why were these two courses combined? Well, uh, the uh, National Advisory 
body had said that we must reduce forces in, in London. There were too many. And there was really, you know, it was an instruction. It was a government instruction, basically. So London, instead of you know, maybe closing uh, Campbellwell and, uh, you know, um, Chelsea School of Art or whatever, yeah. which they could do, um, combine courses instead. So uh, it got rid of courses in name at least, and number. Um, but we were left with the problem of having to combine two different graphic design courses, two heads of departments, two different staff teams, and we had to do it within a year of uh, because if we didn't do it and get it organized, the CNEA was not going to recognize the course and we would not be allowed to take in any students. So that there would be quite a problem of staff redundancies and uh, uh, chaos. Uh, and we had this incredible problem, really, of uh, trying to align two different courses into, into one large course. Uh, eventually, I was still in charge of the course leader of the new course, and we, we did actually get approval from the CNEA, and things went okay. Um, I'd been very crafty and taken advantage of a new Department of Education and Science ruling that um, wanted to ensure that uh, teaching staff were better qualified. And, you know, most of us at my age had <clears throat> only had a, a national diploma, which was no, nothing really compared to uh, the degrees that were being handed out. Uh, and it was a, a little bit of amusement that uh, most of us who only had uh, a national diploma to our names were now organizing courses which were including masters of design and so on, which was um, very strange. So what the Department of Education and Science were doing were offering um, grants for staff to up their qualifications. Now, I was, by that time, very interested in uh, typography with language. And so I had arranged with a sympathetic uh, London Education Authority inspector, Norman Birdstein, I had arranged that if we were successful in getting this course approved, then I would bugger off and do a year on an MA in linguistics at Lancaster University, which actually was terrific. I, I loved it. Uh, it was a challenge, and uh, it was very different, the academic study that I did. But that was, uh, it was terrific because I, it was just what I wanted. Uh, the professor of linguistics in Lancaster was a man named uh, Chris Canlin, and he was a very widely... Uh, Catholic kind of linguist. And, I mean, his comment to me when I went for an interview was, how interesting to have a visual artist in our midst. Uh, you know, this is going to be a very challenging year for those words. Um, and, it, and it was, actually. It was lovely. 
and uh, I got on very well with with Chris Cantley, who went incidentally to uh, Australia as head of the linguistics department in um, Macquarie University, and we were to meet up later on in Australia. But um, the the year at Lancaster University doing linguistics was just what I wanted because it gave me a foundation in the theoretical framework of how we communicate with a language and seeing the visible language as part of the entire branch of language. It was terrific. I loved it. So you did the Masters and, and then? Well, uh, then I was interested in getting out of London, would you believe? No. Um, and uh, I, I applied for what I, I was I was appointed eventually as the Dean of the Faculty of Art and Design in Liverpool, the Liverpool Polytechnic, which was third or fourth largest polytechnic in the country at the time. But it was in dire straits. <laughs> uh, it, it, um, it had had a battle with Margaret Thatcher and the leader of the local council, who was Derek Hatton, who was Derek the Red, um, who had been on brinkmanship with the, uh, uh, the budget for Liverpool to operate. And I, I, when I was appointed as head of graphic design at Liverpool, I had the usual bundle of uh, papers that were part of the conditions of service and all the rest of it. But the last one was saying that um, we're making everyone redundant from December. Uh, so I was given a job, offered a job, and told to be redundant at the same time. But everybody was being made redundant in Liverpool because they had sorted out the budget. Mm -hmm. uh, but it eventually was sorted, and uh, of course we did start, and uh, I became Dean of the Faculty of Art and Design at uh, Liverpool. Uh, and that was my last job before I went to Australia. Why did you go to Australia? Well, well, yes, I'd always wanted to go. Mm. Uh, when I actually started out, that first teaching job in Manchester, there was a guy who was uh, on the staff, I can't remember his name, um, very nice chap who had been teaching in New Zealand. And I thought, well, that, was, that would be rather nice. Um, you know, a, a better climate, um, still an English uh, character, um, but in another part of the world. <clears throat> uh, I wasn't so keen on Australia at the time because Australia seemed to be a rather coarse place to be. No, the camps were not, not, not so English. They, were, they, were, they could be very rude, you know. Um, so I thought New Zealand might be good, but nothing happened with New Zealand. I did write to various places for jobs, but I got the usual response that, uh, very interesting, your application, but we, we don't have any vacancies at the moment. Yeah. Um, so I eventually gave up going to, uh, going to New Zealand. But by that time, Australia changed its, social and uh, the 
ethos about it. I mean, the, 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 the films that are started coming out of Australia in the, in the late 70s and 80s were absolutely superb. And I got interested in, uh, in Australia. And a friend of mine, Bob Miller-Smith, had been uh, in Australia for some years. And uh, I, after what, three or four years uh, at Liverpool, uh, in Liverpool, um, I wanted to see some of the world for myself. And I persuaded the HMI for the local area to support an application for me to go um, abroad and do a lecture tour with my um, typography and linguistic approach, which we did. I didn't actually get any funding for it in the end, um, but I, I did. I, I don't organize so much of it. I decided to go anyway. So I went to Hong Kong and then down to uh, Sydney, where I stayed with Chris Candlin, the professor at um, Macquarie University, and I did a little tour which I'd arranged with uh, doing basically the same lecture actually in different places. But I ended up in Adelaide where the School of Design had, uh, Bob had been the head of the School of Design there, and he'd gone back to the UK for a period of time. And so there was a vacancy for the head of school, which I applied for, and eventually got, and it seemed like a a nice, good opportunity. I was a bit fed up of Margaret Thatcher, who ruled the roost in, in the UK at the time, and was changing education into the uh, American model, like a profit company, rather than education for the common good. And I didn't like the way that was going. And Australia certainly did. Uh, I said, when I was uh, Liverpool, our budget for operation was really very small and mean and very difficult to operate on. Um, I'm in touch with uh, uh, one of the lecturers that was in charge of the fashion and death style area mm. when I was there. And... Um, She's reminded me lately that uh, they used to send students out to the skips that were around the city looking for fabric and um, maybe televisions with copper tubing and so on for, you know, for material. Uh, it was a desperate situation for a normal um, financing and funding for an education program. So it, it was very tough. Uh, Liverpool, I think, was probably the, the worst end, and other places were not as bad as that, but it, it wasn't a good situation to be in. And I'd been the head of school, and then the dean of the faculty, uh, you know, for about for over 20 years. And I hadn't got the phrase of burnout at that time, but um, I, it was getting serious that I, I needed to have a break from from that. I had actually decided to take early retirement and I worked out that if I took early retirement and 
taught on a part-time basis, I would obviously drop a salary, um, but it wouldn't be too bad. It was still livable. And I would be able to exist without the worries of being the dean of a whole faculty of uh, you know, 500 students and yeah. stuff and start to enjoy the teaching and, and living again. So I, I, I took out of retirement from the UK. Uh, but I, I didn't know that the head of school at, um, in South Australia, in Adelaide, was going as well. So it, I didn't oh. actually... Well, yes, I, I, I hadn't actually got the job when I retired. But um, uh, it did come up eventually, so I moved to Australia. I spent about seven years in uh, Adelaide, and they were good years. Uh, and I liked the city very much. The climate, of course, was terrific. It was nice uh, alfresco eating and drinking on uh, the pavement cafes, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And um, uh, then the job came up in um, in Curtin, in Perth, on the West Australian front, which I went for largely because it was it would be nice to see another part of Australia. I mean, it's a hell of a long way from Adelaide. Mm. Mm. So that was it. I, I, re I retired from Curtin in the year 2001, which was 50 years exactly after I had started art school. That's and of course, that, that's what I've written about in in the autobiography, uh, the, the autobiography, in, in the book of Carl. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us, tell us about your book. Well, it's um, it's a square format, uh, 24 centimeters square, and uh, it's because of the size, it's a bit expensive, which I'm sorry about, but um, the size is just so beautiful. Uh, but it, it, it is a record of those 50 years, all the teaching appointments, who I work with, um, the problems, the successes, the failures. <laughs> and there were a couple of very big failures, actually. Um, but uh, it's all in the almost tell-all book, yeah. It's, very, it's, it's illustrated with the graphic work, which I, because I was doing graphic design for all that time, and I felt I'd moved reasonably well with the different trends in graphic design. I never set any trends, and I never considered myself to be anything other than a, a journeyman designer. Uh, nevertheless, the, the work represents a kind of mainstream. So there's a sort of history of visual graphic design spread throughout the book as well. Uh, I just thought it was worth doing. I, I started out as something that I, would, I was going to do for my kids, you know. Um, actually, my kids haven't ought to read it by one hour. I think they'll, they'll probably get more interested in, in it, when it when they're a little older. But... Um, it was written with them in mind, and then when it was forming 
much better as an output, as a visual thing, I decided that uh, I would separate the books. One would be more of a family thing with family history and stuff in there. And uh, I would make the square format one that was aimed for a more general reader, for the, the designers, and, it, and it's, it's just out now. Oh, fantastic. So there, there are two versions of your book. Sorry? There are two versions of your book. Yes. Well, there's only one which um, is a different size. It's 20 centimeters by 25. It ah. cuts out 24, and that, that makes it a hell of a lot cheaper to produce. And I've just produced a few of those for the family here as well. Right, um, right, right, right. Eight or ten copies. Which I've got a little uh, perfect binder as well, so uh, it, it's I, I mean this is the magic of the computer and uh, the printing process of the digital printer. Yeah. So that um, it's very easy to produce your own book now. Uh, yes, yes. So from all your career, if you could create the ideal school for graphics, what would you do? A school for graphics? The ideal, the perfect one, if there was no limitations, if there were no limitations, how would you create the, the ideal school? Ah, uh, that's a good question because, uh, you know, what do you do? I've said in the book that uh, if I come back, I mean, the problem was that we moved from the art school of the kind that I was trained in yeah. and very happy to be in, where you work alongside a group of other people, usually the same age. Uh, it certainly wasn't those days. Um, but you see each other's work, you share what's going on, and you have uh, to expose yourself to these criticisms. You know, it's, it's very much a social and a group activity. Yeah. It was in my day. Uh, and it stayed that way, obviously, for a long time. And when I was teaching in Manchester, for instance, it was still that sort of uh, approach. But we were now up to the stage where students, and my two stepdaughters, have both been good in the visual arts. And um, they've, they've taken university courses where... They just pop in, you know, for a few lectures. Uh, sometimes don't even pop in for the lectures. They can take it, take them online. They take the exercises and do those individually in their own cell, uh, submit it online, and with a bit of luck, get feedback from the shooters, also online. Um, but I think it, it misses an awful lot of the social uh, stimulation of working on designs and seeing what else is happening. There's, there's um, extra stimulation from that kind of thing. And I think that's a sad thing. So in, in, in the introduction to the book, in answer to your question, what would I do? Um, I would start an art school very much like the one that I studied in. Um, because 
uh, a designer friend of mine uh, who was Vietnamese. He was a Vietnamese boat uh, refugee to Australia way back in the, in the 70s, Hong Kai. And Hung did a lot of odd jobs when he first came and then he uh, followed his art and went to do to art school, became a designer and finished up uh, teaching as a lecturer at um, Curtin University and he now has a PhD. Um, but he's a, he's a Buddhist and uh, he tells me that I will come back in uh, you know, 50 to 100 years' time. Uh, he's convinced about that. Um, and I have just said, well, yes, if I do, I'm going to start an, an art school just like the one I went to. So what, what did you apply the principles in your distance learning MA on the, in designing online? How did you bridge that? Uh, sorry? How did you bridge your when you were teaching at the distance learning of well, the Masters in Design Online? So what strategies did you use from, from your art school? Well, that is difficult because uh, the students, and I, I got interested in distance learning when I was at uh, Adelaide, the uh, University of South Australia. They have a different system in Australia to the UK system. UK have the Open University, and they run practically all of the uh, distance courses that you can study off campus. In Australia, each of the major cities, like Brisbane and uh, Adelaide and Sydney and so on, uh, one institution is generally the one that provides uh, distance education courses. Now, in South Australia, they had a very good unit. It was superb. And they had some terrific people there. Partly because the University of South Australia was a combination of uh, College of Advanced Education, which was a teacher training college. And uh, there were some very good educationists there. When they started up the distance education, uh, which was basically correspondence course in those early days, uh, they got very good at it. The strategies of how you approach with that long-distance, uh, lonely person sitting in their own room and getting their material through the post was quite a challenge. Um, when I went to... I, I actually launched... Uh, the first MA, postgraduate design course, through that method, basically, with, with um, books, readings, tapes, recordings, you know, um, the whole works, um, with the University of South Australia. When I went to Perth, part of their attraction to me was that I'd had that kind of experience in Perth is the most isolated city on the planet. So that, um, you know, distance learning had to be a major development for them. And they'd already got lots of courses going that way. But, I, um, of course, the, the situation changed because it was 1996 
and uh, the internet was developing. Yeah. So we concentrated on putting this correspondence course into a format that could be delivered through the internet. Um, and I, I, I do find that kind of thing uh, is attractive, is a challenge. Um, most of my colleagues uh, didn't want to get interested because they thought you could only teach design in a classroom in the studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know how to do it when we, when we started. But the head of the distance education centre, uh, Bruce was very persuasive and, and, and told me that there was no subject in the world that could not be taught by distance learning. Um, and he quoted um, uh, the man from South Africa who became the president of South Africa, um, that he, he taught, he, he was taught by distance learning, mm. uh, to become a lawyer, and uh, you know, virtually everything he knew was was uh, through his imprisonment. Nelson Mandela, yeah, that's right. Um, he, he was um, educated through distance learning techniques, so it was a challenge. And I found that, well, you, uh, of course, it was different for postgraduate, and that was a good place to start because you don't have to teach the basics. These people have got a degree. They've probably got, uh, the students were, were qualified and they had some experience. Um, so it was a different proposition. And most of the master's work was much more theoretical. And um, it, was, it was easier in that respect. And I do think it's a problem. Um, to teach uh, through distance education means to students who don't know anything. If, you know, they're starting out. I did have yeah. experience of that with the uh, typography teaching which I did for the last uh, umpteen years. When I retired in 2001, I, we did a tour of um, Australia you know, four-wheel drive and uh, tents and all the rest of it. Um, and then I went to live in Denmark for two or three years. And when I came back to Australia, I started uh, doing the online teaching, which I only gave up in 2019. So uh, obviously it is difficult. And... Um, one has to adapt the way one teaches if your students are not going to be able to sit in front of you and uh, something you can do in five or ten minutes with a pencil with a student you can't do in uh, learning. You've got to construct it in a different way. So how did you, what did you change? Um well, I still use the uh, the writing, typing, and printing model. Um, 
And that seemed to work reasonably well because we we moved on to uh, text messages and email. Uh, and a T-shirt is still a T-shirt, so that um, the, the situation was easier to do. And I also did, um, I got them to work with materials again using the concertina fold of the Chinese book, which they had to produce and present as a photograph, uh, both as a, as a InDesign uh, PDF, uh, but also photograph the object so that they, we, could, we could assess it as in the round. Um, so yes, when I, when I had to do it with the second-hand use of photography and uh, um, digital formatting, Not so easy. Sorry? It wasn't so easy. Yes, of course, of course, of course. Not so successful, I know. Hmm. What would be the principles of your new school? What, what principles would you, would you have in, 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 your, in, in, in the school that you will make? I think it would be around um, teaching typography with a stick in the sand. Um, <clears throat> I think it would be uh, still hands-on with drawing and uh, typography and a lot of uh, theoretical input on language and media and communication, really graphic images. Um, it would be a lot more theoretical and cerebral, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I would still except to construct in a way that would uh, have students dabbling and getting their hands wet with making things. Yeah. I think that's very important. Yeah. And who would be the people that would influence you? The designers or the educators that would influence you? Oh, I think so many. Uh, so many designers. Mm. Um, I, I got to know Alan Fletcher quite well. Yeah. And uh, I just had so much respect for Alan. I visited him in his studio in uh, in, in Hong Park and um, he was he was a gentleman. Um but he he had a vision and an insight into how to do things. Uh I think Alan Fletcher would would uh be a person I would look up to. But I think there's, there's a lot. Um, my friend in Germany, Olaf Loy, is a year younger than me. Um, he's now the oldest friend I'm, I have. Um, I'm afraid many others have uh, gone by the wayside, but Olaf, he's the one who calls us veteran typographers. Okay. And uh, he, I've used... Uh, a, a, a short piece that he wrote to me on email uh, and I, I closed my book with his um, his thoughts about design uh, because I think he's, he's really very very smart and he's put design into 
a context of uh, it's something which we do, it's ephemeral, it's gone, and when our careers are finished, you know, we're finished. There's nothing else. It's not a scientific discipline. Um, but I thought his he was very perceptive about the way design is, and um, I've concluded my own book with his uh, articulation of, of these thoughts. Yeah. A any advice you'd like to leave us with for students and for designers and for teachers? What would be your advice? Uh, that's that's uh, a tough one. Um, the only thing you can do is to put every effort in. I mean, I consider design as a, as a fairly fly-by-night thing. Um, but even if you, you do think of it as an ephemeral and not so very important thing, well, I would mention when I went to the University of South Australia, the school of design there was very, very efficient and very good, and the quality of students, the graduates, were really superb. Um, but all the staff thought design was the most important thing in the world. And when I pointed out that the building next door to us was the nursing building, and that they actually did deal with more important things like life and death, uh, I was almost lynched by the design team. <laughs> um, yeah, this, was, this was sacrilege. So I've, I've got a sort of, um, I think, a healthy respect or disrespect for design. But at the same time, to do anything, you've just got to put the whole effort into it. I, I certainly have. I'm, I've got to put every thought, every fiber of my being, even if it's only uh, a concert advertisement for the local school. You know, for the kids' school, it's, it's um, you, you, you have to work very hard at it. And the more you know about communication, the better chance you've got of finding the right kind of idea. But you've also got to have the hands-on experiment, the artistic stuff. Uh, it's a, it's a multi tasking kind of activity uh, as all design activities are. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this talk and uh, we'll, be, we'll be in touch, of course, for, for everything else. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's been interesting to meet you. That's good. Okay, we are...